Tom Hanks plays Hanky Panky with Mr. Hanky the Christmas Pooh in Poopless in Seattle. Yeah, I don't know what's about all that, but moving on. What's up, Brody? Welcome back to Martial Media Montage, episode 81, where I talk sleepless in Seattle, fatal attraction, cocktail, begotten, basic instinct, autopilot off, and no fun at all, recent pickups, and what I'm games I'm playing. There it is, about 12, 13 seconds, just about every time. It's like right on cue. Um, sleepless in Seattle, great, loved it. Fatal attraction, great, loved it. Cocktail, it was okay, begotten, same thing. It was okay. I felt better about it after I read about it. Basic instinct, loved it. Masterpiece, masterpiece. That and fatal attraction, as well as sleepless in Seattle. Masterpiece, loved it. Uh, out of the five films, three three out of five I enjoyed. The other two, eh, okay. Autopilot off, classic skate punk rock from the 90s, early millennium. Same with No Fun at All. Basically Swedish, uh, Pennywise, loved it. Had to talk about it. Recent pickup. So my 24-inch Magnavox uh, TV, CRT TV, the color was starting to go. It had a reddish hue. I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to donate this. So I did. And I was just scrolling on a Facebook marketplace and I found a Sony Trinitron. And me being as much of a nerd as I am, I was like, okay, this is a 36 inch. It's gonna be huge, it's heavy. Guess what? It was also free. I was like, no way, because those things go for anywhere between like $300 and $600 depending on the condition. I drove out, maybe about 45 minutes north, picked it up. I underestimated its size and its weight, put it in the back of my car and I was like, oh boy. I was like, here we go, I'm gonna be, I'm going to be breaking something, you know, losing my brakes or popping a tire on the way home. And I made it home. Okay. I had a buddy come over, uh, Jason, thank you for that. I, I knew you would help me. I was like, you being a nerd and a gamer, you already have a Sony Trinitron in your living room. I was like, yeah, that would, that would be the guy to call. He helped me. We pulled it out, put it on a skateboard, hauled it into my backyard and then put it into my, uh, house. Yeah. It got a little scratched up here and there, but I was like, it still works. It still sounds great. It functions well. I tested it 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 it's phenomenal i'm glad that i have it so i can start you know watching uh, vhs tapes classically the way they're supposed to be watched as well as uh, you know play old school video games on it i'm very very happy with it speaking of video games i was playing uh, i have my av components obviously next to my hd component for uh, my xbox 360 some of you are probably like oh yeah i forgot that the xbox 360 also had av components and there's like a little switch on it it says to hd tv or obviously to a old school tv and uh, I plugged it in, and it sounds great. It looks great. And I was playing uh, the Disc 2 of Rage. I believe I have two or three more missions. I'm almost done with Subway Town and uh, Captain Marshall. I'm just about done with the game. I love it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have played it and enjoyed it thus far. And uh, as of right now, I was playing Sparks of Hope. I think I'm about 45 to maybe 50% done. Uh, probably because I haven't gone back and done all the extra features, you know, unlocked certain things or uh, gotten extra skins for characters and so forth uh, and done secret aspects of certain worlds. But I believe I have this one more world left and maybe perhaps a final boss and I'm done with the game. I don't really 100% games all that often to me. I just have so much other things that I would like to play, watch, read and so forth. That's what I need to do is get back into reading. I still have my Led Zeppelin biography and uh, From Hell uh, to continue reading, as well as I got to finish reading the uh, Jaws magazine, the Life magazine that I have. But anyway, back to Sparks of Hope. Yeah, I, as far as gaming goes, yeah, I mean, I've been playing that. Uh, I'll probably bust out my PS2, maybe my Xbox, maybe my original Xbox and uh, GameCube next and uh, bust it out on the uh, CRT and see what's going on. Uh, see how it looks plays and handles i'm sure it'll be great i just i love it uh, i'm i'm glad that I, I have that thing it's huge it's heavy it's like 200 pounds and i'm glad that it doesn't necessarily bow out the uh 
little TV stand slash buffet that I have it on all that much. I, I, I don't even think it really does at all, probably because I have it centered. I had it off to the side on the uh, table at first, and I was like, ooh, it's it's Boeing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cave in and crush me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I moved it to the center, and it's fine now. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't necessarily – uh, 100% games all that often. It just really depends on the game. Uh, I think one of the closest ones that I really wanted to and or got the closest with was, uh, I think it was the Batman Arkham games. I think I got about 80% and I was like, okay, these Riddler challenges are too much. I'm going to move on. There's just other things I'd rather do than uh, not necessarily waste, I guess, just continue my time on a game. I'd rather play something, beat it, give me a percentage. Cool. That's what it is. All right. I'll, I'm going to move on and play something else. But there you have it. Episode 81. Five films, two bands, games I'm playing, and I picked up a Sony Trinitron. I'm very, very fortunate to have it. Love it. Here it is, episode 81, everybody. Let's go. <sighs> Got a little bit of West Montgomery playing in the background. The best of West Montgomery. I'm going to be talking to you guys about Sleepless in Seattle. It was a VHS that I picked up at a, a Catholic thrift store a little while ago, I think for like a dollar. I mean, you just can't beat VHS copies, you know, and I was like, I... I gotta watch it having never seen it i think it's like this and when harry met sally just some of those classic rom-coms that i'm like you know what i've never seen it i want to watch it gotta talk about it all right it came out in 1993 it is pg hour 45 has a 6.8 out of 183,000, and i feel like it deserves higher you know i mean it it was really cool i i don't normally dig this kind of stuff but i just thought it was just very well done it's a comedy drama romance of course recently widowed man aka tom hanks's character uh, his son happens to call a radio talk show that it, I believe takes place in Chicago, Illinois in an attempt to find his father a partner. He and Meg Ryan essentially cross paths here and there. Don't cross my path. Fucking Stray Cats. Anyway, wrong reference, but Stray Cats are classic. I got a tattooed, right? You have to. But uh, directed by Nora Ephron. Let's see what else she did. I don't really recognize the name. I don't really follow too many uh, female directors i guess i guess if you will she did julie and julia okay i know that she did the remake of bewitched and of course she did when harry met sally uh and that came out a couple years prior with um billy crystal and she also did you've got mail so she's done some classics that i've definitely heard of that i need to watch i believe i've seen julie and julia i don't think i've seen bewitched i love the classic tv show i don't know if i've ever seen you got mail and i know i haven't seen when harry met sally so i'm yep i definitely got some homework to do apparently uh, I know I typically talk to you guys about horror, but I was in the mood for some other stuff this time around. Uh, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, as well as Ross Malinger, Malinger, excuse me, Rita Wilson, uh, Victor Garber's in this. He's been in a lot of stuff. He's a very famous uh, face. Bill Pullman is Meg Ryan's uh, soon-to-be husband, you know, fiance at the time, who's incredibly allergic to essentially everything. And uh, I don't think he gets enough credit in this film, nor do I think in general does he really get enough credit as an actor anyway. I mean, I, I like Bill Pullman. He's great. Uh, Ross Malinger, Malinger, whatever, plays Jonah, who's uh, Tom Hanks, uh, Sam's character's son in the uh, film. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell is in this as well, and she's actually not on top billing, which is crazy. Like, if you just look at the top cast, but she plays um, Meg Ryan's friend. And uh, just the way that it's cinematically just uh, shot, this film is very much like a play. And, and I kind of like that about um, this film in particular. Uh, trivially, let's take a look here. Uh, well, actually, you know what? Let me read the tagline first. What if someone you never met, someone you never saw, someone you never knew was the only someone for you? And rightly so. Rated PG for language. And even then, it probably could have passed as a G and been fine or unrated. I mean, who cares? It was just... It was a solid good film. I enjoyed it. So, 
The scene between Tom Hanks and Victor Garber crying over the movie The Dirty Dozen, 1967, Lee Marvin, um, Charles Bronson, um, that's such a great film, uh, was completely actually uh, improvised during that particular take. Crazy. The silhouette of the couple on the box of chocolates in the shop window uh, outside Annie's house when they're walking by is actually a silhouette of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I could already tell as soon as I saw it. It's a black uh, chocolate box with, um, I think it's like a gold-plated kind of face imprint of them on it. And just instantly, I'm like, yep, that's them. Uh, While making the film, the director, Nora Ephron, was focused on its long-term legacy. Our dream was to make a movie about how movies screw up your brain about love. And then if we did a good job, we would become one of the movies that would screw up people's brains about love forever. Uh, Sure. You sound a little crazy. All right, moving on. (laughs) Despite playing the role of his sister in the film, Rita Wilson is the real-life wife of Tom Hanks. They had been married for five years at that time of the release of this film. A pre-Seinfeld reference to the real-life soup Nazi. Very, very true. Very true. A male journalist is speaking as Meg Ryan enters an office at her newspaper saying, He's the meanest guy in the world, but he makes the best soup you've ever eaten. So cool. Anyway, uh, I just realized that I, I didn't catch that at the time. Actually, I probably did catch at the time, but I've been watching a couple movies that I'm... Sorry about the technical difficulties. We will resume the show, and I'm just going to keep doing this voice and be a weirdo. All right, let's go. All right, where were we? Excuse me. Um, as far as did you know is concerned for Sleepless in Seattle, the goofs is that since Walter Bill Pullman's character uh, had a lot of allergies, he was supposed to be allergic to wheat. What does he do? He orders a sandwich on white bread, which happens to be made from what? Wheat. Eh, well, maybe they weren't necessarily paying attention. Maybe they thought the viewer wouldn't be paying attention. But guess what? We were. <sighs> Released June 25th, 1993 in the U.S., uh, also known as Kongul o Seattle, apparently. I'm not quite sure which language. Uh, anyway, filmed in Seattle, Washington at Pike Place. Released on TriStar Pictures. You always know when you see that TriStar logo, you're going to be in for a treat. I feel like my first instance with the TriStar logo was, shit, I want to say it was uh, Hook. If Yeah, I think Hook was TriStar because Orion might have, I don't know. Orion was such an iconic one, too, from the 80s. Anyway. It was a major success. Uh, budget was $21 million and it grossed $227.9 million, basically $228 million overall. Let's see what Wiki has to say. 1993 American rom-com, directed by Nora Ephron, which we already know, wrote David S. Ward, uh, excuse me, written by David S. Ward and Jeff Arch. Um, it's an ensemble supporting cast. Okay, here it includes Rosie O'Donnell, which obviously she wasn't in the main billing for IMDb, but... Anyway, inspired by the romance film An Affair to Remember, which happens to be with the film within a film, while uh, Meg Ryan and uh, Rosie O'Donnell's character watch a uh, classic Cary Grant film. Uh, Arch submitted his script to uh, producer Gary Foster in 1990. Foster strongly believed that the film's potential was struggled to get it made by TriStar Pictures for several years, finding its emotional script promising but unsophisticated overall. Uh, the film was shot mostly in Seattle during the summer of 92. Several of its most pivotal scenes were filmed on a formal naval base due to the city's lack of soundstage. So probably uh, Everett or um, what's the other one? Whidbey Island, perhaps. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, uh, including a recreation of the Empire State Building's observation deck when the New York skyscraper was not available. Excuse me. Sleepies in Seattle was released June 25th, 1993. Same uh, date that IMDb had to, uh, excuse me, that it was slated, I guess. 
receiving praise for Efron's writing and direction, as well as Hanks and Ryan's performances. The film was nominated for two Academy Awards of the 1994 Best Original Screenplay and Best Original Song. It is one of the highest grossing films of 93. It remains the most successful rom-com in box office history. I believe it off of a 27, or excuse me, 21 million and grossed basically $206 million overall. It's crazy. The soundtrack was also successful, peaking at the number one Billboard 200 uh, chart. Critics and media publications agree that it is one of the greatest rom-com films of all time, credited with establishing uh, Nora Ephron as a celebrated romantic comedy filmmaker. However, think about it, what, four years prior, she just did When Harry Met Sally, so I don't know why that wasn't necessarily, I guess, as successful as this. Perhaps I'll find out when I decide to watch that and dig more into it. Uh, Production-wise, in 89, it was conceived by Jeff Arch, a struggling cinematographer who was working as an English and Taekwondo teacher at the time. Uh, the story began as a play about two people falling in love over the telephone without meeting in person, which it relatively does. Granted, Tom Hanks is on the phone and Meg Ryan's in her car listening to the telephone call on her radio. Uh, initially found out most of the reasons conceived to keep the couple apart unconvincing. Uh, Arch, Archie, excuse me, whatever his name, whatever, Archer, Archer Bunky, whatever the fucking you guys get it anyway i'm just rambling and having fun he ultimately decided that unlike typical romance plots in which the main character biker excuse me bicker not biker yeah biker mice from mars yeah classic cartoon back to biker mice from mars all right now back in the 90s there's a game on super nintendo called biker mice from mars no okay i'm gonna get i'm just having fun here okay the characters bicker for most of the film after they meet cute uh, the couple that would not meet until the end of the film, which is true, and they even managed to end the film without them actually kissing, too. They just meet each other eye-to-eye, hold each other's hands, leave the Empire State Building. You don't typically see that in most of these rom-com films. There's always, like, a closing end, like, kiss scene, or I'll never let you go. Some sort of segment where they discuss some sort of plot device, something, and they literally just look at each other and, like, walk away uh, together. Like, it, it's so cool. Like, I'm like, ooh, they didn't even kiss. Like, I anticipated it. I started to tear when they finally see each other because they've only been trying to see each other like the entire film. They're like, there's something about this person. There's something about this person. I mean, she even leaves Bill Pullman's character and he's uh, freaking Tom Hanks, Sam's character stops dating that one weirdo that his son doesn't want him to date. Like, it was like meant to be and then they are so like awestruck of each other that they don't even manage to kiss. And I was like, they did it right. I'm like, oh my God. You know, I'm in my 30s freaking crying over a, <laughs> a movie that came out when I was like, you know, three or four years old or whatever but it still it works i I loved it anyway (sighs) several parties warned uh, arch about the unlikelihood of the film being made due to the lack of scenes shared by its lead couple desperate arch's agent dave warden submitted the spec uh script to producer gary foster in 90 only to find that he was crying by the last page what did i say i was doing the same damn thing i'm with you buddy let's go cry together over this Let's be. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's so weird. Like as I age, I'm just like, oh my god, <laughs> old yeller, what? Or Bambi, or you know, like Littlefoot, your mom, or whatever. Like I don't know. Just this stuff just gets to me now. When a 16 year old me would be like, dude, quit being a little girl, man. Like cut it out. Anyway, uh, the producer predicted that staff readers would uh, fail to realize that the film worked uh, despite being unconventional. After pleading from Foster, Fishoff. Uh, Eventually relented and read the script, opting to TriStar a few days later. After struggling, a writer for several years, Sleepers in Seattle was Arch's first script to be optioned as a film. Eventually, TriStar chairman Mike Medavoy heavily promoting the film. Foster began interviewing potential directors shortly after. Nick Castle was slated to write and direct Hook, 1991. Love that fucking movie. Love that movie. It's almost like a godsend because I mentioned it earlier in the earlier segment. A big budget adaptation of Peter Pan for TriStar also. Uh, I don't need to talk about it. I will talk about that because I'll probably watch it eventually. 
having not seen it in a few a few good amount of years, but I definitely watched it religiously growing up. Okay, back to Sleepless in Seattle. After finally agreeing to maintain the idea of keeping the couple separated, TriStar insisted that the wistful script be rewritten to make the film and each character edgier and quirkier, particularly Sam and Annie. And it works. They're very... It's like subtle, but it's also in your face, but it's not too in your face as far as their uh, quirky edginess is concerned. Uh, Arch begged Foster and director Nick Castle to hire a better writer who's going to take this way up to the next level. Ah, man, great, 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 great stuff. Uh, filming, filmed in Seattle, obviously. Arch was inspired to have Sam live in a houseboat upon watching a Seattle-based episode of The Old House. Featured host Bob Villa visiting a similar home. Principal photography began in July of 92. Once submitted the final draft in March of 92, Efron described the filming schedule as almost instant, recalling they were scouting locations in June, filming by August of that same year. Uh, here it says a budget of $25 million, but then also on the same page it says $21 million. So a difference of four, I will meet in the middle and we'll say $23 million. How about that? Regardless, it was still a success over $200 million, right? Why not? Filmmakers could have not had a large enough warehouse to host one set uh, since they used the Sandpoint Naval Base, also, as I mentioned before, to make it look like uh, the New York Empire State Building. Because Seattle was experiencing a drought while filming, the filmmakers imported water trucks to simulate rain scenes. That's crazy. The city was reportedly angry about what they perceived as a waste of water, and who could blame them? In addition to Seattle, scenes were shot in Chicago, Illinois, Baltimore, Maryland, and New York City. Ironically, Foster deemed a house located on Queen Anne Hill, Baltimore, enough, quote, end quote, to serve as the Baltimore-based home of Annie's parents. Efron intended for the opening shot of the Chicago skyline, a funeral to evoke artist Saul Steinberg's 1976 The New Yorker, excuse me cover a view of the world from ninth avenue a set designer reportedly found working with efron so difficult that they begged uh him to be fired from the film that's crazy wow uh the studio was initially permission excuse me denied permission to shoot one of the film's final scenes on the empire state building whose management refused to close the observation deck to allow tourists there while filming that's crazy Efron strongly believed that you were two phone calls away from anyone efron knew the publicist who was representing builder owner uh, Leona Helmsley, who was in prison for tax evasion at the time. After discussing the matter, who visited her in jail, Helmsley granted them permission to use the building for only six hours. Leverage, right? <laughs> it's all about leverage. If you don't do this, I'm going to report you kind of deal. Jesus, crazy. After discussing the matter with her publicist who visited her in jail, Helmsley granted them permission to use the building for only six hours that allowed them to film the helicopter shot. The observatory of the Empire State Building on which Sam and Annie finally meet during the film's climax was actually a replica built in Hangar 27 at the uh, naval base uh, in Washington instead of New York, as I stated. Okay, so that's how that worked. Uh, the filmmaker also avoided using blue, a color Efron particularly dislikes. Arch was uh, surprised to find that certain shots matched what he had envisioned when writing the film, including the use of shooting stars in the title sequence, as well as in the final sequence as well. Uh, musically, it, it was great. It had Jimmy Durante, uh, Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole. It's only fitting that I'm listening to some jazz right now still. Wes Montgomery, uh, Carly Simon, Gene Autry, Classic Country, Joe Cocker. Uh, you know, what would you do? I, I'm a terrible Joe Cocker. Uh, she wrote me a letter. Oh, man, classic stuff. Uh, dude, there's just some great, great, great tunes in that. Thematically, romantic fantasy. Uh imitates life i mean it's it's all over the place it's great it's its own kind of romantic comedy that everybody should enjoy you know whether you like this type of stuff or not i don't typically go for this kind of stuff but i really enjoyed it yeah i thought it was great uh receptively what do we have here roger ebert 
It was an ephemeral, it was ephemeral as a talk show, as contrived as the late show, and yet so warm and gentle, I smiled the whole way through. Adding, the actors were well suited to the material. Tom Hanks keeps a certain detached edge to his character, keeping him from being simply a fall guy. Meg Ryan is one of the most likable actresses around, is a certain ineffable, ineffable, yeah. Inevitable. No, ineffable. I can't even effing speak English. How about that? Doris Day Innocence, in her own right, is able to convince us of the magical quality of her sudden love for a radio voice without letting the device seem like a gimmick as it assuredly is. Whew. Yeah. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, 75% out of 60 critics, and rightly so. It, it, it's great. I, I absolutely loved it as well. Even Metacritic, I'm on board with them. The film is 72 out of 100. I seriously think this episode has like all just stellar movies that I've watched so far, except for maybe one. Maybe one was just like, eh, actually maybe make that two. I don't know. We'll, we'll see when I get there. Uh, awards and accolades, uh, 66th Academy Awards, best original screenplay, Noir Efron, best original song, A Wink and Smile, American Comedy, Golden Globes, best film, best actor, Tom Hanks, best actress, Meg Ryan, of course, and MTV. Best Female Performance, Meg Ryan. Best On-Screen Duo, 1994 MTV, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. So it did really well. Uh, Legacy-wise, it's a classic love story. It's an ultimate romantic comedy. A def- definitive. Uh, it's just... There's timeless wish fulfillment that you're going to meet that person somewhere and everywhere. Every time you watch it, you, you obviously know what's going to happen next time. But it's just... It's incredible. Sleepless in Seattle alone is credited with introducing most Americans to tiramisu, which had been relatively obscure dessert before 1993. So fast forward 30 years later, now, relatively since it came out, what was it? It was like June 25th? Am I really talking about it when it came out? Hang on a second. I think I am talking about it when it came out in theaters. Holy crap. I, I was actually unintentional. Uh, let me... Uh, 1993, when did it... Holy crap. Yeah, it released June 25th, 30 years ago. That was a complete accident. I saw this VHS and I was like, I've been talking about it for a long time like with my friends. I'm like, I don't really watch too many rom-coms. I got to watch this. That's just pure coincidence and evidently it was almost like meant to be. Holy crap. That was, I swear to you guys, that was a complete accidental just coincidence. Uh, Moving back to Legacy Wise, holy crap. It just, it made me think. I was like, wait, when did it come out? So... The Washington Post said that uh, tiramisu began to suffer in quality due to their popularity, reporting that several restaurants began taking shortcuts in order to keep up with the demand since the film, of course. In 2014, Roger Ebert, uh, Rob Reiner actually dismissed tiramisu as overrated, insisting that he would never order it for himself. Rob Reiner has a very uh, small, I guess kind of cameo supporting role in the film with uh, Sam's character, uh, Tom Hanks. After a grueling three years during which the dark underbelly of nostalgia was used to uh, prop up the worst. Eh, Anyway... I'm just reading here. Uh, enough of that. I had a lot more to say about this film than I thought, but I, I had no idea, coincidentally, that I literally watched it and I'm talking about it this the same 30 years ago that it came out. And it's still, to me, personally, if I saw it then when I was five, it probably would have had the same impact. Then again, I was five. I probably wouldn't have understood everything. But I understand everything now, and I'm glad I watched it, and I'm glad I'm talking to you guys about it. I loved this film. All right, next one. What's going on, everybody? Since uh, Tom Hanks in Sleepless in Seattle basically broke the fourth wall relatively and was rather meta, I guess, if you will, and talked about, have you seen Fatal Attraction? You know, because he's referring to women can be kind of crazy kind of deal. I mean, everybody can be kind of crazy in relationships. I figured I would talk about Fatal Attraction since I decided to watch it. And I also, 
I guess, ambiguously decided to play Deftones because you never know whether he wants to essentially sleep with you or kill you. So good job, Chino. I love your music. All right. Fatal Attraction, 1987, rated R, hour 59, has a 6.9 out of 92,000 reviews, and rightly so. I I think it, yeah, it, it's at least a 7, if not maybe a little more, maybe a 7.2, 7.4, around there. It's a drama thriller. I'd say it's like a neo-noir, like a 80s American version of like a giallo. Uh, it's a married man's one-night stand comes back to haunt him when that lover begins to stalk him and his family. Directed by Adrian Lin. Let's see what else they did. All right. Let's see what else he did here. Jacob's Ladder. It's a solid one. Uh, Indecent Proposal. I will have to I will have to watch that one. I think, I think I've heard of that one. I don't know if I've ever actually watched it. He also did Flashdance um, and obviously Fatal Attraction. So, okay. All right. Backpedaling a little bit here. All right. Written by James Dearden and starring Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Ann Archer. Michael Douglas playing Dan Gallagher, a lawyer. Glenn Close playing Alex Forrest, who's essentially his lover in this film, I guess, if you will, who ends up essentially becoming crazy. Spoilers for those who haven't seen it. And Archer playing his uh, wife in the film, who he uh, commits adultery, you know, on, I guess, playing Beth Gallagher, his wife. Ellen Latson being the little girl as Ellen Gallagher. Stuart Pankin, who is also the dad in uh, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. That's the only thing I really remember him from. I'm sure he's been in other stuff. I just can't recall. Fred Gwynn from, uh, obviously, the Munsters, you know, playing uh, Herman Munster, as well as uh, playing the uh, neighbor across the street in a pet cemetery. Sometimes dead is better. You know, yeah, Fred Gwynn's great. Uh, very, very small role in this, but, I mean, it was cool to see him. It's cool that he gets top billing regardless. Um, moving on, let's see what else we got here. Um, tagline, on the other side of drinks, dinner and a one-night stand lies a terrifying love story. And, yeah, that's that works for me. Uh, parents guide it says certificate rated R and just like a basic instinct it's lust love murder drugs it, it, it you name it it's it's all in there it's it's a crazy film I mean both of those films are crazy and I will definitely get into basic instinct because I watched that one as well and I will talk about it right now I'm talking about fatal attraction attributely Glenn Close still has the knife she used in the film hanging in her kitchen stating it's beautiful made of wood and paper it's a work of art it's nice for our guests to see it and it lets them know where they can stay or they can't stay forever that's pretty cool more than 20 directors passed on directing this film that's also crazy uh, to get the di- desired reaction shot from ellen during the scene where she witnesses her parents having an intense argument michael douglas was behind the camera bullying ellen latson and threatening to take away the stuffed unicorn she's holding saying look at the stupid unicorn I'm going to throw it in the garbage, which is why she begins crying and hugging it tighter. After director, uh, excuse me, after director Adrian Lin yells, cut, Douglas immediately apologizes to her and said he was only kidding and hugged her. In an interview years later, Douglas stated, I felt pretty guilty, but you've got to do what you got to do in order to make it seem realistic. And yeah, sometimes you got to methodically act behind screen too, you know, in order to get the reaction you want. Sure. I mean, it's rather harsh, but hey, at least he, at least he's admitted that I feel guilty for doing that. So, I mean. You know, bravo and props to you, I guess, in that regard. Glenn Close said that in her opinion, she had no trouble doing her nude scenes because she believed that they were not exploitative at all and that they all served the story. Uh, I guess you can believe what you want. It was rather exploitative, sure, but okay. According to Glenn Close, people still come up to her and tell her, thanks, you saved my marriage. <laughs> that's uh, that's something. All right, moving on. Oh, God, I love Deftones. 
Oh, it's just, it's something else, man. They just, okay, all right. What else we got here? Oh, boy. Come on, load. Okay, released September 18th, 1987. Uh, also known as Affairs of the Heart. Filmed in Bedford, New York, and produced by Paramount. Box office, $14 million, Grossing $320 million worldwide. I'd say it was a success. It's a huge success. Okay, Wikipedia. What else we got here? Uh, it's a play based on the film Sea Fatal Attraction play. Interesting. Okay. It is a psychological thriller, and yes, that's definitely the right title for it. Uh, the film centers on a married man who has a brief but torrid affair with a woman who refuses to allow it to end becomes obsessed with him. And that's that's an understatement. Uh, released September 18th, 1987. Okay, so they got the same dates right by Paramount. Yes, that's also correct. Receiving positive reviews, generating controversy at the time of its release. The film began a huge box office success against a $14 million budget. It was the highest grossing film of 87 worldwide. 1987, that being. Uh, at the 60th Academy Awards, it received six nominations. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Glenn Close, Best Supporting Actress for Anne Archer, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. Wow, that's... That's incredible. Uh, Production-wise, uh, as far as writing is concerned, it was adapted by James Dearden with the assistance from Nicholas Meyer from Diversion, an earlier 1980 short film by Dearden by British Television. And I did see that. It's like maybe a 20-minute short. Uh, I wonder if I can look into that and find it and watch it. I, I would be definitely interested. In his book, uh, Myers' book, The View from the Bridge, Memories of Star Trek and Life in Hollywood, he explains that in 86, 1986, producer Stanley R. Jaff, Jaffe, I'm not quite sure, Jafar, yeah, from Aladdin, the villain. So the villain from Aladdin tries to ask him to look at the script developed by Dearden. I'm just going to roll with it. And he wrote a four-page memo making suggestions, including a new ending. A few weeks later, Meyer met with director Adrian Lane and gave him additional suggestions. Ultimately, Meyer was asked to redraft the script on the basis of his suggestions, ending up being the shoot uh, for the script. Pretty crazy. Uh, Casting-wise, uh, serious doubts about casting Glenn Close because they did not think that she would be sexual enough for the role of Alex. That's, ooh, okay. Eh, different times, I guess, right? Different strokes for different folks. Barbara Hershey was originally cast for that particular role. Hershey wanted to do it, but she was unavailable. Several actresses actresses auditioned for the part, but they were also uh, turned down as well. Close was persistent after meeting with Jaff. I'm just going to call him Jafar because I think it's funny. Several times in New York, she was asked to fly out to L.A. to read with Michael Douglas in front of Adrian Lynn and uh, Lansing. Before the audition, she let her naturally frizzy hair grow down because she was impatient at putting it up, and she wore a slimming black dress she thought that made her look fabulous at the audition. This impressed Lansing because Close came in looking completely different. Right away, she was into that particular part. Glenn Close and Michael Douglas performed a scene from early on in the script where Alex flirts with her, or Alex flirts with him, excuse me, at the cafe when they're drinking and they both get coffee and they leave. Uh, convinced that my career was over and that I was finished. I had completely blown my chances. Lansing and Lynn, however, were both convinced that she was right for the role at that particular time. Lynn stated that an extraordinary erotic transformation took place. She was tragic, bewildering, mix of sexuality and rage. I watched Alex's character come to life. To prepare for her role, Close consulted several psychologists, hoping to understand Alex's psyche and motivations. So she's clearly a methodical actress here, and it, it shows, it works. I loved it. It was phenomenal. She was uncomfortable with the bunny boiling scene, which she thought was too extreme. And even me, even, th even though I know it's probably a prop, and I'm sure it was. I doubt they did it. But even then, I felt like it was too extreme. But let's see what she had to say about it. 
She was assured on consulting this psychologist that such an action was entirely possible and that Alex's behavior corresponded to someone who experienced incestual sexual abuse as a child. And yeah, there's a lot of weird thematic elements here that just kind of, it's like overbearing and underbearing depending on however you want to look at it, uh, different angles. And yeah, it was, that was a pretty fucked up scene. It, it, well, the whole movie's rather fucked up, but you can't look away. Uh, there's actually an alternate ending. Uh, the original ending with Alex, Glenn Close's character, uh, scripted slashing her throat at the end of the film's uh, sequence when the knife that Dan had left on the counter to make it appear that Dan had murdered her. Oh, wow. So after seeing her husband being taken away by the police, Beth finds a revealing cassette tape that Alex sent Dan in, which she threatens to kill herself. Upon realizing uh, Alex's intentions, Beth takes the tape to police to clear Dan of the murder. The last scene shows in a flashback Alex taking her own life by slashing her own throat while listening to Madame Butterfly, the opera that her and uh, Dan were listening to. After doing test screenings, uh, Paramount decided to shoot a new ending because it didn't go over well. Uh, in the 2002 special edition, uh, Glenn Close comments that she had, um, in the special edition DVD, that she doubts the reshoot, the film's ending, because she believed the character would self-destruct and commit suicide. And it certainly was basically at that element. She had the uh, butcher knife and she was like stabbing her leg before she went after uh, Archer's character, uh, Beth. Close uh, eventually came, gave in on her concerns and filmed a new sequence after having fought against the change for two weeks. Wow, she didn't even want to do it. That's crazy. In 2010, during a cast reunion interview, Glenn Close shared that she never thought of her character as a villain, stating that I wasn't playing a uh, generality. I wasn't playing a cliche. I was playing a very specific deeply disturbed, fragile human being who I had grown up to love. However, though the ending was not the one that she preferred, she acknowledged that the film would not have experienced an enormous success that it did without the new ending because it gave the audience a sense of catharsis, a hope that somehow the family unit would survive the nightmare. Wow. Uh, the film's first Japanese release used the original ending. Wow, that's crazy. The original ending also appeared on the special edition VHS and Laserdisc released by Paramount 92. And it was included on the film's DVD release a decade later. Now, I wonder if that's on the VHS release here in the States or if it's strictly since I was just reading about Japanese. Um, that it's strictly just a Japanese-based uh, VHS or Laserdisc release. That's interesting, man. I'm going to have to hunt that down if I can. That'd be, oh, that'd be so cool to have. God, I, I loved this movie. I thought it was cool. Like a borderline masterpiece. Uh, a special collector's edition of the film was released in 2002 on DVD here in the States. Paramount released it Blu-ray June 9, 2009, seven years later, containing several bonus features from the 2002 DVD, including commentary by the director, April 2020 remastered Blu-ray, Paramount Home Entertainment. Paramount released the film 4K HD Blu-ray September 13, 2022. I, sure, all these re-releases. As long as you guys keep throwing in more commentary and more behind-the-scenes stuff, keep it coming because I'm always interested. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, 75% out of 55 critics. Eh, it deserves higher. has a 6.8. Well, that's basically what IMDb gives it, though. <clears throat> excuse me. Had a burp. Metacritic, the film has a rating of 67 out of 100 out of 17, uh, excuse me, 16 critics. Cinema score, an A out of an A to F scale. And, yeah, rarely so. I mean, it was, it was solid. I'm surprised I'm not reading anything from, like, Roger Ebert. Like, oh, this, the slutty, lusty madness was just overbearing and disgusting. But it was a good film regardless. Like, I don't know. That's what I was expecting. Academy Awards. What do we got here? Best Picture. Sherry Lansing. Best Director. Adrian Lin. Best Actress. Glenn Close. Nominated, of course. Nobody won. 
Best Supporting Actress, Ann Archer, as I stated. Best Screenplay, James Dearden. Best Film Editing. I'm surprised Michael uh, Douglas didn't get nominated for anything, but sure. I mean, whatever. Okay, uh, there was also a TV series that came out in 2023, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, I'm just going to continue to listen to Deftones and give you guys my closing arguments. I thought it was a masterpiece. It was basically a late 80s version of like a neo-noir mystery thriller from like the Maltese Falcon, uh, Humphrey Bogart days, meets like an Italian giallo, uh, Dario Argento, Lucio Fulci, uh, Bava type film. Uh, Michele Suave, in- insert giallo director here. I loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, moving on to the next film, guys. All right, what's going on, guys? I'm going to be talking to you guys about Cocktail 1988. So with that being said, why not play some cocktail classic rock music? I do love The Doors, you know I mean? So try to hide, you know, break on through to the other side. I (laughs) I spoke a little too soon. Try to run, try to hide. I know The Doors. I I have this on an LP. I I got it on a vinyl years ago at a San Diego uh, swap meet for like, I don't know, 10 bucks, like a first print too. And I'm like, you only want 10 bucks? I don't think you know what you have here. All right. I will gladly give you 10. Anyway, (laughs) Talking Cocktail, 1988, rated R, hour and 44 minutes. I had a sealed copy of it, VHS. I opened it up because, I mean, what's not the enjoyment of watching it in its original form, I guess, if you will, more or less. Well, original form would have been theaters, but as far as early home media is concerned, you know, yeah, I decided to open it up and I watched it. And it's a 5.9 out of 89,000. It is a comedy drama romance about a talented New York City bartender, a.k.a. Tom Cruise, takes a job at a bar in Jamaica and falls in love. His intentions are to uh, go to Jamaica, essentially make money, come back home and work with his Australian buddy and open up their own bar and you know, it doesn't necessarily pan out that way. But uh, directed by Roger Donaldson. Let's see what else he did. She gets high. I love how it's the original version because the uh, radio edited version, they took out, you know, the she gets high aspect. But anyway, let's see what uh, Roger Donaldson did here. Uh, Species, the 1995 film, classic, loved it. World's Fastest Indian with Anthony Hopkins about the true life story about the Indian motorcycle. And he also did The Bounty, also starring Anthony Hopkins. So, okay, this guy did some... Uh, some work that I gotta watch here. All right, backtrack, backpedal here, back to uh, the main uh, stage. Starring Tom Cruise, Brian Brown, and Elizabeth Shue. Elizabeth Shue, you know, from, uh, what was it? Oh my God, don't tell me. Um, Karate Kid, she's the uh, blonde actress in that. She's been in a lot. Uh, Brian Brown plays the Australian, his his friend who works at the ball and he gets punched in the face. <laughs> I can't help it, it's just a lot of fun for me. Uh, Kelly Lynch plays Carrie Coughlin, who ends up being Doug Coughlin, Brian Brown's wife in the film. Uh, Gina Gershon's in this. Uh, who else we got here? Ah, uh, really? Nobody else that I'm all like, oh my god, I gotta talk about them. You know? All right, moving on. It's in the same vein as like Risky Business and uh, you know all the right moves. His earlier work that I feel like gets kind of overlooked a lot. So the tagline is, "When he pours, he rains." Not as in like raining coming down, like he rains, like he lasts a long time. Whatever it. It's a dumb tagline, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, comedy, drama, romance, rated R, probably for language and booze, I guess, more or less. But, okay, trivially, let's find out what we got here. Uh, I'm digging the doors, though, I'll tell you that. Actress Gina Gershon stated in a podcast interview, huh, uh, I said, huh, only because, obviously, that's what I'm doing right now. That she, during their bed scene, Tom Cruise knew she was extremely ticklish, and he tickled her so hard that they both fell off the bed. It was, in fact, the take that they used in the film. That's pretty funny. The term for the flamboyant uh, tending of bar by Brian Flanagan, Tom Cruise's character, 
and uh, Brian Brown's character, Doug Coughlin, is called Flair Bartending. It's an acrobatic bartending skill. John Brandy, a Flair bartender, trained Tom Cruise for the film to do it. Uh, the film was made and released four years after its source novel of the same name by Haywood Gold. Gold also penned the screenplay for this film. Trivially, wow, this is pretty cool. Robin Williams was considered for the role of Brian Flanagan. Williams had previously starred in Club Paradise in 86, uh, two years prior. Incidentally, Williams starred in director Ronald Roger Donaldson's next film, Cadillac Man, in 1990. I don't think I've seen that one. There's a lot of things that Robin Williams did that I'm like, what the hell is that? I've never even heard of that. But that's something else I'll add to the list that I'm going to have to watch. Uh, both Club Paradise and Cocktail were filmed in Port Antonio, Jamaica. The film was listed among the most, <laughs> wow, the 100 most enjoyably bad movies ever made in John Wilson's book, The Official Razzie Movie Guide. And, yeah, rightly so. This is one among the list of the, uh, you know, films within this particular episode that I was just like, eh, it's, it's okay. I mean, I've seen it before, but it's been a long time. And like I said, I had a VHS copy and I was like, I'm going to open this up and I'm going to watch it and see what I think about it. Released July 29th, 1988, so it is almost 35 years old. Uh, language uh, spoken in English and apparently Spanish as well as sign language. So that's interesting. Filmed in Dun River Falls, Ocho Rios, St. Anne, Jamaica. Production companies Touchstone and Interscope. Budget $20 million, grossed $171 million. So it, it grossed $150 million, and yet it's still one of the most terribly bad, enjoyable films of all time. Whatever, all right. Let's see what Wiki has to say. It is American rom-com dramedy film by Roger Donaldson. Uh, what else we got here? Released July 29, 1988 by Buena Vista Pictures, who also, under its adult film label, touched on Buena Vista being a part of the uh, Disney um, syndicate. Uh, Cocktail features an original musical score composed by J. Peter Robinson. Despite that music being involved, like I said, I wanted to play some cocktail music, so I threw on the doors. How about that? Despite earning overwhelmingly negative reviews from critics, it wins the Golden Raspberry Award for the worst picture. The film was a huge box office success, grossing more than $170 million worldwide against a $20 million budget. Despite all that, it still has the Golden Raspberry Award for worst picture. I don't know why, I guess. I mean, sure, why not? Like I said, it's it's just an eh film overall. It's, it's a guilty pleasure, you know, whatever. Uh, it probably won awards because Tom Cruise was an up-and-coming kind of a guy at the time, you know, and Elizabeth Shue's great. I mean, she's still attractive for her age. I love her, man. You know, she's even been on, like, Cobra Kai and whatnot, and Cobra Kai is awesome. All right. For you slip into unconsciousness. I love the weird, just croony stuff that Jim Morrison does. Maybe not necessarily weird. How about we'll just say kooky, quirky... I don't know, just definitive. Uh, anyway, back to cocktail script. The film was based on Haywood Gold's semi-autobiographical novel published in 84, a few years prior. He worked as a bartender in New York from 1969 to 81, supporting his writing career. He met a lot of interesting people behind the bar, and who wouldn't? He was very rarely uh, someone who started out wanting to be a bartender. He had ambitions, some smoldering, and some completely forgotten or suppressed. The lead character is a composite of a lot of people I met, including myself in those days. In the late 30s, I was drinking pretty well, and I started feeling like I was missing the boat. Character in the book is an older guy who has been around and starting to feel that he's pretty washed up. So it's not necessarily as true to the book as it should have been, but regardless, it's still a decent time. Universal bought the film's rights, and Gold wrote the script, changing it from his own novel. He said the studio put the project in turnaround because I wasn't making the character likable enough. Well, I mean, it's your book. I mean, if you decide... Well, 
Whatever, Hollywood. Okay, moving on. Disney picked up the project, a.k.a. Buena Pictures, as I said, and then their adult film label, Touchstone. And I went through the same process with them. I would fight them at every turn, and there was a huge battle uh, over making the lead younger, which I eventually did, obviously being Tim Cruise. Gold later admitted that the people who wanted to make the changes were correct. They wanted movie characters, characters who were upbeat and were going to have a happy ending and possible futures in their lives. That's what you want for a big commercial Hollywood film. So I tried to walk the thin line between giving them what they wanted and not completely betraying the whole arena of saloons in general. This is what uh, Haywood Gold was saying. Tom Cruise expressed interest in playing the role, which he helped to get financed. So he was obviously successful at that particular time already. There were a lot of bartenders around like him, younger guys who came on and were doing this for a while and then 10 years later still doing it. Uh, it wasn't as if he was betraying the character. This is coming from Gold still. It was a matter of making the character more idealistic, more helpful, and he's got his life ahead of him. He turns on the charm without the cynical, bitter age of older men. Right, being salty crabs. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Brian Brown, the, uh, you know, the guy who plays Coughlin. Yeah. <laughs> Later said the original script was one of the very best screenplays that he had ever read. Eh, sure, okay, whatever. Believe whatever you want. Uh, very dark about the cult of celebrity and everything about it. Tom Cruise is a sweet man, and then he still is. But when Tom came in, the movie had to change. The studio made the changes to protect the star, and it became a much slighter movie because of it. Okay. Interesting. Uh, production. Gold said that the tricks involving throwing bottles was not in the book, but something he showed Cruise and Brian Brown. They used it, and it became a prominent feature of the film. That's pretty cool. Uh, post-production a musical store store yeah musical store so FYE and Warehouse came in and they sold everybody uh, Metallica Megadeth records no a musical score was originally done by Maurice Jarre Jar excuse me yeah Jar Jar Binks Maurice Jar Jar Binks from Star Wars Episode 1 decided to sell records <laughs> Jesus he was in big trouble this time Jar Jar a new score was added at the last minute holy crap Oh, I'm killing myself over here. Kelly Lynch said that the film was actually a really complicated story about the 80s and power and money. It was really re-edited where they completely lost my character's backstory. Big surprise. Okay. Although it being a box office success wasn't a surprise. Uh, critically response. Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 9% out of 45 reviews. Metacritic. 12 out of 100. Cinema score. A B plus on an A to F scale. Uh, let's see what Roger Ebert has to say. It was also critical explaining that the more you think about what really happens in the film, the more you realize how empty and fabricated it really is. It's a film, dude. You're not supposed to, like, it's not supposed to be a lifelong, you know, I don't know, like, coming-of-age tale. It's just a fun, goofy movie to enjoy, man. Come on, why not? Anyway, additionally, Cruz's other film of the same year was his co-starring role in the Best Picture winning film Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman, a much, clearly a much better film. In doing so, he became the first and actor to win Worst in the Picture and the Best Razzie winner and also Best Picture Oscar winner in the same year. So he won a shitty award and a great award. Great accolades. Sure, why not? Oh, wow, it's crazy. Uh, what do we got here? Uh, yeah, I mean, Cocktail, it's, it is what it is. I mean, take it or leave it. You know, some of the stuff he did in the 80s and 90s, it's hit or miss, but this is one of those kind of just like in the middle, under the radar type films. Like, well, not under the radar. It's over the radar now. I mean, I guess since I'm talking about it, right? But anyway, all right, next thing. All right. I got some aquatic ambience, the Donkey Kong Country uh, soundtrack in the background. I figured it was very fitting for this film because there's just weird ambient music, uh, crickets, weird gurgling, weird just... This is a very, very strange film. 
Uh, it's free on YouTube. It is an hour and 12 minutes. It's called Begotten. It's the first extraordinary film from the director of The Shadow of the Vampire. Uh, I still, I don't think I've yet to watch that film. Uh, a film by Elias Merhige. Mer- Merhige? I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. I don't know why I'm talking like Sean Connery. I probably... Anyway, yeah, so I'm talking Begotten. It has a 5.6 out of 11,000. It's very, like, just, it's it's a fantasy horror film presented in a surreal, gory, and entirely visual manner. Uh, you know, Begotten tells the death of religion, the abuse of nature by man, and a nihilistic outlook on what life ultimately is. It's, it's very, very strange. Written by the same director as well, Tom Gunning, starring Brian Salzberg, Donna Dempsey, Stephen Charles Berry, uh, and it came out in 1989. It's just, it's really, really weird. I mean, let me see what else director. I mean, I, I, it's hard to say whether I liked it or not. I liked David Lynch's Eraserhead more. I mean, I don't know if that's saying much or what. Uh, what else did he do? A uh, Shadow of a Vampire, obviously. Suspect Zero and Implosion. It came out a few years uh, prior to this film. Um, I don't. I don't know. I assume it's very important because it seems like from what I'm about to be reading to you guys, it's an incredibly important film uh, overall of the course of life and its importance and uh, disambiguation and so forth. It's just, I don't, I didn't understand it. I felt like Tetsuo the Iron Man as far as exploitation, uh, bizarre, important films is a lot better personally. Um, so the storyline here is that God disembowels himself with a straight razor. So, the, okay, so the first instance you see God in the beginning. To me, I thought it was a female. Excuse me. Okay, well, now reading on, it says the spirit like Mother Earth emerges, venturing into a bleak, barren landscape. Okay, that makes sense. Twitching and cowering, the son of Earth is set upon faceless cannibals. And that's, okay, now seeing it in writing, that makes sense. Because watching it, I'm just like, I, this is so grainy, and there's just random crickets and weird, like, oh! like weird noises i'm like i didn't understand it i i didn't get it uh certificate it's definitely unrated because it's just grotesque it's just nude just weird it's it's almost like watching like if a caveman had a camera and it's very grisly and just black and white and i don't know it's very artsy but anyway trivially let's see what i can find here i i'd like to say i'm happy that i watched it but i'm still uncertain (laughs) Approximately 8 to 10 hours of optical work, re-photographing, visual treatments, and filtering were required to produce one minute of this film. The total post-production period for the 72-minute movie was eight months. Stephen Charles Barry and Adolfo Vargas are the only actors who had another role outside of this film. Barry appeared in uh, Elias Merhiji's short film, Bin of Celestial Birds, and Vargas in an episode of American Playhouse. The film released on home video twice in 1990, a uh, VHS and a 2001 DVD re-release, both of which were extremely limited and out of print quickly. I'm not surprised. In 2016, director Elias Merhiji announced on Instagram that he was releasing the film on Blu-ray for the first time. Deals fell through. Uh, Date hasn't been announced since. Today, the film only exists due to extreme video bootlegging. Yeah, I admit that's how I watched it. Granted, like I said, it's free on YouTube, so you can find it. Anybody can watch it. Most of the bootleg copies are VCR recordings of the original VHS tape of the film and are very poor quality. So you're telling me there's a slightly better copy? I mean, regardless, I probably won't ever watch it again. That's just me. The cast members after the first three of the the theater of material, I guess. Why did they put it as one word? That's so weird. Okay. Were credited twice in the end. uh, Credits first under the name of the collective and then individually. 
director Elias uh, originally didn't want to release the film on home video at all, stating that he had hated the medium for movie watching. Interesting. He later changed his mind and agreed for a very limited VHS release in 1990. Sounds like a weirdo, this guy. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a jerk. I'm not trying to be. Just simple opinion. Moving on. Released June 5th, 1991, so it came out a year later. Language uh, English, filmed in New York in its production company, Theater of Material. Okay. Budget $33,000. There's no real gross. Sure, whatever. Let me go to Wiki, and it looks like there's a lot of thematic elements here that uh, I guess maybe we'll shed some light and give me an explanation here. The VHS cover art here says one of the most important films of modern times. Uh, I. It probably is, but it just, it didn't really make, to me, Stalker made more sense. And even then, that was pretty strange, too. And I talked about that a couple episodes ago. And I talked about El Topo a couple episodes ago. And I even like, I actually, I don't like it. I love it, uh, Holy Mountain. That's also a weird film that, sure, for, I guess, maybe the faint of heart or for those who aren't necessarily as artistic as most. I mean, it's it's a bizarre film. Anyway, back to Begotten. An experimental film, written, produced, edited, shot, and directed by Edmund uh, Elias Merhige. Excuse my language, excuse me. <sighs> the film contains no dialogue, yeah, that's obvious, and employs a style similar in some ways to early silent films, as I've stated to uh, a friend of mine before who I was watching, or excuse me, I was watching this film and I told him earlier, I was like, dude, it's like a silent film. And that's fine, I, I like silent films. Like, I've seen uh, the, uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is considered one of the first horror films. And that was better than this. It opens with the suicide of a godlike figure in Birth's Mother Earth. So that makes sense, as I've stated earlier. The son of Earth who sets out on a journey of death, rebirth through a barren landscape and cannibals. According to art historian Scott McDonald, the film's allegorical qualities and purposeful ambiguity invite multiple interpretations. So there is that, but it's nice to have a definitive answer. Like, I wonder if there's something here that the director's like, this is how I wanted it to be and this is how it should be. Therefore, this is how it is, and move on. Like, rather than just having psychologists and film critics look it over and be like, no, 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 it's this. No, 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 it's this. Like, what does the director have to say? Maybe I'll find it. I don't know. It was first conceived as an experimental theater piece. Uh, Not surprised. The film's visual style was inspired by George Franju's documentary short, Blood of the Beasts. Uh, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. I have it. haven't watched that film. Uh, Stan Brackedge's act of seeing with one's own eyes and the German expressionist film The Cabinet what did I say The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari loved that film I thought it was really cool shot on location in New York and New Jersey over a period of three and a half years wow not eight months according to IMDb in an interview Merger I'm just going to say that Merger that's his name sure why not filming took only five and a half months so it's a little different here once it finished they spent the next two years trying to find a distributor willing to market it and Good luck, right? <laughs> Filming, uh, excuse me, following its debut at the Montreal World Film Festival, screened at the San Francisco International Film Festival, they brought it to attention of fellow critic Susan Sontag. They largely ignored by mainstream critics. I'm not surprised it attained a cult film status and influenced several avant-garde filmmakers, visual artists, and musicians. The film's scarcity on home video prompted its fans to spread their own bootleg copies, a phenomenon described as a copy cult by film studies scholar Ernest Mathis. As the first part of a trilogy, Begotten was followed in 2006 by Din of Celestial Birds with the theory of evolution as its dominant theme. Concluded in 2022 as of last year with the premiere of Polia and Blastemia, a Blastema, excuse me, a cosmic opera based on a Gnostic creation mythology. Uh, how about instead of going into maybe themes here, maybe I'll just read what the plot is based out of. 
So a small shack, a rogue figure dubbed God killing himself. I thought it was a woman. So I mean, then again, that's interesting. Well, it, it could have been a woman. And then because even then, you know, the whole omnipotence of God is supposed to be omnipotent. It's supposed to be it doesn't really have a gender, although obviously the Bible being written by man, it's, you know, portrayed as a man. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I'm not about to do a religious podcast. I'm talking about this film. Moving on. In the film's credits, uh, God disembowels himself. How about we'll just say disembowels itself? How about that? Using a straight razor, after removing some of its internal organs, the robed God dies. A woman, Mother Earth, then emerges from its mutilated remains. That's what I thought I saw. She brings the corpse to arousal and uses his semen to impregnate herself. I didn't notice that. That's fucking weird. Wow. Uh, Time passes, and Mother Earth, now visibly pregnant, stands beside the coffin of the dead god, wandering off into a vast and barren landscape. Mother Earth later gives birth to a son of Earth, a malformed, convulsing man. I definitely remember that. Soon abandoned by his mother, who leaves him to his own devices. It makes sense now in reading it, but I'm watching it. I'm, I, it's not that I didn't want to interpret it and understand what was going on. It's just I felt like maybe some sort of dialogue or a, I don't know, a title card, if it was a silent film, I guess, if you will, perhaps would have shed some light on it. I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm watching. After an untold period of time wandering across the barren landscape, the son of Earth encounters a group of faceless nomads who sees him by his umbilical cord. I definitely remember seeing that, and I thought that was pretty strange, too. Upon being captured, the son of Earth begins to vomit up what appears to be organs, which the nomads excitedly accept as gifts. They then throw the man into a fire pit where he burns to death. Son of Earth is resurrected by Mother Earth, who, comfer- who comforts her newly reborn offspring before they continue together across the barren landscape. The nomads soon return and proceed to attack the Son of Earth as Mother Earth stands in a trance-like state. Turning their attention to her, the nomads knock her to the ground, rape and murder her as her son watches helplessly nearby. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense now. Once the nomads have left, a group of roped figures arrive to carry away Mother Earth's mutilated, disemboweled remains. The group returns to murder and disembowel her son, placing pieces of both mother and son into jars, which they bury into the crust of the earth. As time passes, the burial site soon becomes lush with flowers. A montage of grainy photographs depicting God himself are shown. Killing himself, that is. In the final scene, Mother Earth and her son appear in a flashback, wandering through a forested path. <sighs> that's... Uh, vaguely, I will go over themes. Wow, that's that's a mouthful. That's... Whew, I, I guess plot coming from the director maybe or the writer who happens to be the director okay themes critics have identified several major themes in the film uh Merger himself acknowledged that he intentionally incorporated these themes into the film while inviting viewers to form their own interpretations so he utilizes death and rebirth as well as uh, an incantation of matter and essentially reincarnation thus being you know mother earth and jesus and god and so forth uh, religion, mythology, and the occult. He introduces all that on purpose. Uh, influenced by Blood of the Beast, the film, as I mentioned, Dr. Caligari, Eraserhead. Ooh, okay. So film critic Snyder has pointed out that David Lynch's Eraserhead might have influenced the film's visual style. Per se, And but I admit the, vis- or the visual that I saw was rather a little more grainy. Yes, it's black and white like Eraserhead, but this is just so just weird. Let me read a little bit more. Development. Some sources list the date as of 1984 when it first began uh, production. Developing this particular project was initially for the theaters. This is decision made to adapt the script for motion picture instead of a theater production uh, in 84. Uh, before working, they made several short films together 
Implosion 83, as I mentioned, Spring of the or Spring Rain 84, and Taste of Youth in 85. Wow. That's uh, it's just such a weird uh, shot in several different locations, filled multiple roles, film production, cinematography, and special effects, uh, using a 16 millimeter Aeroflex camera on black and white reversal film. A majority of the film was shot at a construction site in the border between New York and uh, New Jersey. Scenes involving time lapses of sunrises and sunsets were shot by the director, spending a couple days alone in the mountains near Santa Fe or Albuquerque, New Mexico. Funding of the film came from uh, his grandfather, the director, setting him up with a trust fund for a uh, medical school. So much for that. Additional costs were paid by uh, him from income that he received while working multiple jobs as a special effects artist at that time. Described working on the film as being a powerful, almost ceremonial experience that changed the lives of all of those involved with the project forever. And yeah, rightly so. Before Elias Merge worked on special effects designer for various companies, including a brief job for Disney Television involved uh, rotoscoping. The jobs provided the technical knowledge and savings he needed to handle the film's post-production and visual effects. Uh, it had a decayed look on purpose, as if the film were an artifact that had been damaged and degraded over vast stretches of time. He wanted it to look that way, as if it were from the 20s, not as if it were from the 19th century, but as if it were from the time of Christ, as if it were a cinematic Dead Sea Scroll. On purpose he did that, that it had been buried in the sands, a remnant of culture with customs and rights that no longer applied to this culture. Yet somewhere underneath it, under the surface of what we call reality, that is begotten. Wow, that's... I don't even know why. Why is there a soundtrack? That's just irritating. Here, let's put a musical piece together with ambient dirge-like sound design, natural sounds, bird calls, and the sounds of a heartbeat and crickets. Yeah, I I would not buy that. Granted, yes, I'm listening to Donkey Kong's aquatic ambience for however long I feel like listening to it. <laughs> Home media and bootlegging. Uh, I, I'm curious, man. Oh, well, let, me, let me read reception, and then I will find the uh, VHS price for you guys. I'm curious. What if everybody just laughs? What if they didn't see anything in it? There is always a possibility. That's what the director wondered. Reactions of the film upon its release were extremely polarized, uh, stated that the remains grateful for starting his career with that particular film. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, Legacy. Let me see what we got here. Cult following. 100 cult films of all time. Uh, in a 2011 book, as one of the film critic noted, it earns its reputation as an endlessly provocative and mystifying experience centuries ahead of the rest of American cinema forever and will always be stamped that the real sectarian cult it's a very small committed group of people it's a secret handshake that goes worldwide if you've seen begotten you are in that cult that's insane like it what the hell the film's critical success provided a foundation for him to continue his filmmaking he went on to direct the critically critically acclaimed shadow of the vampire and a less well-received suspect zero nick cage a co-producer of shadow of the vampire advocated hiring Elias Merge to direct the project based on his impression of that film Begotten. That's crazy that Nick Cage knew about that. Uh, that's... Well, I mean, I'm not surprised. He's a Coppola, so of course he knows movies, whether they be good, weird, bizarre, awesome. But anyway, more power to him. That's pretty cool. Uh, Elias Merge was later hired by Marilyn Manson, the artist, to direct music videos for his songs Antichrist Superstar and uh, Cryptorchid the later utilizing imagery that was heavily incorporated from Begotten the film. Uh, he was a huge admirer of that film, Marilyn Manson states, having the album's art designer watch the film for inspiration while developing cover art for his own album. He personally contacted uh, Merge to ask him if he would be willing to direct the music video for his song, Crypt Orchid. Manson had stated Begotten was playing on a loop during the entire recording for his album, Antichrist Superstar. That's insane, dude. 
Wow. Okay, what else we got here? This is crazy. Subsequently barred from the release of Interscope Records, uh, Manson claimed were appalled by it due to its fascist iconog iconography. Iconog iconography. Oh my gosh. Wow. Excuse my language. I, I can't speak English. What the fuck? Uh, namely, the Nuremberg Rallies, along with U.S. military footage and images of the KKK, crazy enough, lynching. Antichrist Superstar was also beset with troubles and remained unreleased until it was leaked on YouTube in 2010. So thank you, YouTube. I was able to watch it and talk about it. Influentially, uh, has become a minor influence on several avant-garde experimental films, been cited by several artists as some of the inspiration of their works, and it's just... It goes on from there, man. I, I had a lot more to say uh, about this film than I thought. Uh, having read it, it makes more sense. I, I would say now that you know, if you if you hear, I can't even speak English about this film. Jesus. So oh, no pun intended, since I'm talking about religious. <laughs> excuse me, and this film. But that being said, uh, since you have heard me talk about this film now, I would say watch it and give yourself your own interpretation. Like I said, it's an hour and twelve minutes. It's free on YouTube. I'm glad that I watched it first and now I read it and to me it makes more sense. It will probably immediately make more sense to you having heard what I've said about it and watch it and you'll see it portray it uh, played out in that particular order. It's it's something to behold. Uh, I got to see if I can um, maybe perhaps find a, a copy on it. You know, let me see if I can take a look here. Uh, let me type in uh, Begotten VHS on uh, if I can. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious uh, as what the price is. Uh, let me see. Begotten VHS. Uh, I'll probably look up the DVD for you guys as well. Wow. 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 Begotten VHS cult horror. Very rare and tested. $400. There's only one on here. $400. Wow, and rightly so. I don't know if I would pay that if I found it in the wild, you know, and it was like ten dollars. I'd be like, yeah, I'll give you ten bucks, sure. Uh, begotten DVD around twenty to thirty bucks. That's probably a better option for those of you. Uh, wow. Uh, and there's another uh, DVD version that goes for almost four hundred dollars. There you have it. Begotten's a crazy film. It's clearly, it's clearly incredibly expensive and a rare film to watch and behold and have in your collection i'd say watch it at least once maybe you know write me an email or you know find me on social media and tell me what you think about it all right moving on all right what's going on guys i got tool undertow playing in the background i decided to play tool because what does sharon stone use in uh, the film basic instinct a tool essentially to cut ice an ice pick so and I figured it's rather aggressive and dark and in your face. I figured, why not? Kind of very, very fitting, I guess. And I think the album did come out around this time, if I'm not mistaken. So anyway, Basic Instinct, 1992, rated R, two hours and seven minutes, has a seven out of 209,000. Now, this masterpiece as well, in the same vein as uh, Fatal Attraction, I was like, yo, I got to watch this too. I remember seeing both of those films on TV as a kid with my, uh, I think my dad. But, I mean, you know, it's a TV film, so, of course, they're going to edit out, you know, Sharon Stone's crotch, all the nudity, a lot of the murders and so forth, and the blood and gruesome. Anyway, but that being said, I'm glad I watched it. It's been probably 20 years for both of those films since I watched them. Holds up. It's phenomenal. They are both masterpieces in their own right, and I love them. It's a drama mystery thriller about a violent police detective and who investigates a brutal murder that might involve manipulative and seductive novelist, a.k.a. Sharon Stone's character, 
as uh, Catherine Woolsey, I believe, in the... Uh, Catherine something. I'll figure that out momentarily. I can't remember. Directed by Paul Verhoeven. Let's see what else this gentleman did. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been talking a lot. Wow. Losing my voice. Oh, he also did uh, Robocop. Excuse me. I should have known that. And Hollow Man with uh, Kevin Bacon in 2000. I also like that as well. Uh, Robocop's badass. So, okay. All right. This guy's well known. And Basic Instinct kicked ass too. All right. Written by Joe... Uh, Joe S. Terhas, excuse me, starring Michael Douglas, Sharon Stone, and George Zunza. Michael Douglas playing Detective Nick Curran, Sharon Stone, Catherine Trammell, excuse me. Uh, who else we got here? Jean Triplehorn, who's also uh, attractive. She plays Death, or Death. Wow, I totally fucking messed that up. She plays Death, yep, in uh, <laughs> Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, You Sunk My Battleship. That's her, yeah, no. Jean Triplehorn plays Dr. Beth Garner. All I was trying to say. Holy crap. Leilani Sorrell plays Roxy Hardy, a.k.a. Sharon Stone's girlfriend in this film. Wayne Knight, a.k.a. Newman from Seinfeld, plays ADA John Carell. Very small part in this. He sweats after Sharon Stone moves her legs. And, you know, he's trying to talk to her, and he clearly can't because he's shy and just, you know, basically infatuated with her character. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great film. Mary Pat Gleason's in this, the juvenile officer. Very, very small cameo in this, and she's also a very well-known uh, older actress as well. So, oh boy, tagline, a seductive suspect and a cop who can't resist her. Yeah, very much so. It's It almost plays out like the way that I just read that is like John Grisham or James Patterson novel, uh, you know, pretty much. But trivially, let's see what else we got here. It looks like it says no body doubles were used for any of the sex scenes. And okay, all right, fair enough. Upon seeing the film, Spielberg noticed Wayne Knight and immediately wanted him to play, oh, that's cool, the year prior that this came out to uh, Jurassic Park. He wanted him to play Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park. He stayed through the end credits just to find his name, and Knight ended up being the first actor cast. That's so cool, man. Oh, man, I, I respect, like, so much more out of that. Like, he's like, all right, I got to figure out who this guy is. Like, that's so interesting. I mean, with his poll, he probably could have just, like, you know, hit up the director or hit up Michael Douglas or somebody, you know, like via paged or faxed him or whatever the case may be. And be like, hey, who's that, you know, nerdy guy with the glasses who's sweating when Sharon Stone moves her legs? Yeah, I want that guy in my movie. Anyway, <clears throat> Sharon Stone was director Paul Verhoeven's choice, but was only offered the role of Catherine after 13 actresses had turned it down and she was not the marquee name at the time. Uh, Paul Verhoeven had some disagreements with Michael Douglas over the direction of Sharon Stone. Stone was reportedly very nervous and insecure in her first scenes. She was unable to replicate the performance that she had given during her audition. According to Verhoeven, she came very close to being replaced. She didn't know that she had what the role required. He coached her intensively to get the required performance out of her. However, this caused Douglas to feel left out, as Verhoeven thought that Douglas, as an established actor, no longer needed such close attention. It eventually led to a very heated argument in a trailer, uh, the stress of which uh, Paul Verhoeven to burst a vein in his nose that caused profuse bleeding. That's crazy. He went outside with bloodstained clothes, and crew members believed that Michael Douglas had physically altercated him, a.k.a. hitting him in the face. Uh, trivially, uh, lastly, Michael Douglas felt an established star was needed to play Catherine, so the movie would be carried by two well-known actors and the risk of career damage would be also shared. He suggested that Demi Moore or Michelle Pfeiffer for that particular part. No actress of name was prepared to go completely nude for the role. Wow. Pfeiffer said that she found the idea of filming the erotic love scenes too daunting. 
I just couldn't do that one because of the sexual parts, the nudity that she said. My father was still alive and I'm kind of prudish. And honestly, I'm not that uninhibited about my body. I'm modest. Well, at least she was honest. So that's great, you know. And regardless who would have... I, I can't see it any other way. It just, they fit the bill so perfectly, both of them, per, you know, in, in my own perspective, I guess. So I don't think I could have seen Demi Moore or Michelle Pfeiffer play that personally. Nothing against either one of them. They're both gorgeous and great actresses. It just, it wouldn't have been as fitting, I don't think. Uh, the film is also known as Love Hurts. That's a dumb title in my opinion, but sure, why not? Country of origin, United States and France. Filmed in Pacific Heights, San Francisco, California, and you can tell because all the roads are incredibly vertical with like a 90 degree incline, essentially. Produced by Canal Pictures and Coralco as well. Budget of 49 million and grossed 352.9 million. Holy crap. It grossed more than all the other aforementioned films. It grossed 300 million. Holy crap. Okay, let's see what else uh, Wiki has to say. A neo-noir erotic thriller. What did I say? Neo-noir for sure because just, ah, so good. Developed in the 80s, the uh, script became the subject of a bidding war. Coralco Pictures secured the rights to the film and brought Verhoeven on to direct. Stone was cast in the role of Tremel after the role was rejected by several actresses. Production was plagued by protest and intense conflict between uh, Esterhaus and Verhoeven. Excuse me. Uh, TriStar Pictures released it March 20, 1992. film received mixed reviews upon its release. The performance of the cast, original score, and editing were praised. Its writing and character development were criticized. The film also generated controversy due to its sexually explicit content, violence, and depiction of homosexual relationships. Interesting. Oh, oh that's right, duh, because uh, Sharon Stone, uh, yeah, was with Roxy. I, it took me a second. I was like, what do they mean? Okay, got it. Despite the pub Oh, and she was also with... Uh, uh, Beth, the uh, doctor that um, Michael Douglas's character was also with. Excuse me, I totally blanked on that one. Wow. But despite the public protest, Basic Instinct was a commercial success, clearly grossing $352 million and becoming the fourth highest-grossing film of 1992. I wonder what else beat it out. I'm curious now. Since its release, the film has undergone a critical reevaluation, become recognized for its groundbreaking, groundbreaking depictions of sexuality in mainstream Hollywood cinema, described by one scholar as a neo-noir film masterpiece, plays with and transgresses the narrative rules of film noir versions numerously have been released on video cassette aka vhs same shit laserdisc dvd and blu-ray including a director's cut with extended footage not in north american cinemas this and fatal attraction both have like different alternate cuts that i'm like oh my gosh now i gotta watch this wow uh, a sequel, apparently, which I haven't seen, released 14 years later in 2006, basically just called Basic Instinct 2, uh, starring Sharon Stone, made without the involvement of Paul Verhoeven and Michael Douglas, receiving negative reviews, and was relatively unsuccessful. Uh, yeah, I mean, after the first one, it's like, what's the point? Uh, Production-wise, screenplay was written in the 80s. Uh, excuse me, Esterhaus, creative force behind the blockbuster films Flashdance and Jagged Edge, managed to compete, uh, compete, excuse me, complete the script in 13 days. Uh, however, Paul Verhoeven suggested changes to the script, strongly disagreeing with a lesbian sex scene that it was deemed exploitative and unnecessary. That's just coming from the director. Uh, Verhoeven unwilling to budge, Esterhaus, the writer and producer Aaron Winkle, left it to the production to decide. That's crazy. Gary Goldman was subsequently brought on board to rewrite the script four times at Verhoeven's suggestion. However, the fourth draft, Verhoeven acknowledged that the proposals were undramatic and really stupid. By the fifth and final draft, 
The script had returned to uh, the original writer and vision only minor tweaks to visuals and dialogue. It received the sole writing credit for the film. In preparation for the car chase scene, Michael Douglas drove up the steps of the Kearney Street in San Fran for four nights by himself. Wow. And he definitely wrecked that car. And then I noticed that as far as continuity is concerned, I mean, there were scenes after the fact where his car looks like it's fine. I don't know if they used uh, other cars that were the same make or if he got it fixed and it just wasn't explained. But at the end of the day, it is just a film. Maybe I'm thinking too much into it. Whatever. Casting. This is interesting. Douglas was cast as for the project early on. He recommended Kim Basinger for the role of Catherine. She declined. Also suggested, get this, Julie Roberts, uh, Meg Ryan, also turning it down, Michelle Pfeiffer, Gina Davis, uh, Kelly Lynch, Ellen Barkwin, and uh, Mar- Marielle Hemingway. All turned it down at, were offered by per- Verhoeven and producers, obviously, to uh, Sharon Stone. Verhoeven considered Demi Moore, but ultimately chose Sharon Stone, with whom he had previously worked on Total Recall. Oh, that's right, when she's talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can't kill me. We're married. And then he shoots her. Consider a divorce. Love that movie. Love Total Recall. Fairhoven had been particularly struck by the way that she quickly transitioned from evil to love in a couple of seconds before her character's death in that film. I, yeah. Yeah, I pretty much just stated the sequence. Love that movie. <sighs> Man, there's going to be a lot of shit flying around, uh, apparently is what <laughs> Michael Douglas was saying. He was upset that the relatively unknown Stone was cast, determined to have another A-list actor, worried about taking the risk, and he said, I need someone to share the risks of this movie. I don't want to be up there all by myself. Stone was paid 500 grand for the role. Douglas received $14 million. That's fucked up, man. Wow, whatever. It is, I mean, it is what it is. Different time, different time. I mean, Douglas, you know, obviously had his father over his head probably kirk douglas i guess perhaps coaching him i don't know the guy i obviously i i I will never know them but just i'm just guessing you know okay film opened in uh, march 1992 at the north american 1992 Cannes film festival uh home media re-released on dvd in 2007 Uh, recently as of 2021 a 4k ultra hd release was uh released rotten tomatoes gives it a 57 percent 6.2 out of 10 uh, unevenly echoing the work of Alfred Hitchcock, as they stated. Uh, sure, whatever. Believe what you want. I enjoyed it. Not because of the nudity. I just thought it was good writing. A Metacritic, the film holds a score of 43 out of 28 critics. Mixed or average reviews. Cinema score gives it a B out of an A to F scale. Roger Ebert awarded it 2 out of 4 stars, saying the film was well-crafted but died down in the last half hour. The film is like a crossword puzzle. It keeps your interest until you solve it. Okay. Then it's just worthless scrap with the spaces filled in. Eh, you're certainly entitled to your opinion, and you know everyone has opinions. They're all like assholes, right? Same thing. Oh boy, uh, what did we win here? Academy Awards Best Film Editing, Best Original Score. Just nominated. Um, okay, well, yeah. I mean, there you have it. Can we just be sober? Very fitting too, because Michael Douglas's character in the film, Sharon Stone, called it. He was like, hey, I don't drink, I don't smoke anymore. And she was like, you're going to smoke again. You're going to drink again. What does he do? He does both again. Very fitting that I close out this uh, film, Basic Instinct, with this song, Sober. You know? Anyway, I loved I loved this masterpiece. I thought it was great. So there you have it. All right, moving on. a little segment where I would like to uh, discuss uh, some uh, skate pop punk 
punk rock with you guys, I guess, from like the 90s, uh, early millennium. I had intentions of uh, looking up the Deviates. I couldn't find anything for some reason. Uh, perhaps I'll have to Google it later at another time, and I will gladly talk about that band because they definitely don't get enough love. Nor do I feel like this band gets enough love. Autopilot Off, that's why I'm going to play it. I think I first heard them on a Vans Warp Tour. It was like a 2007 album. Here it is. I'll play a little bit in the background. Uh, Autopilot Off, Make a Sound album. Turn it down a little bit, a little loud. Okay. And I got a little bit of information I'd like to talk about. Uh, it's a punk rock band from Orange County, uh, New York, apparently, composed of Chris Hughes on guitar, Chris Johnson on guitar vocals, Phil Robinson on drums, Rob Kucherek on bass. Historically, they formed in 96 under the name Cooter. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, I, they could have kept it. Sure, why not? I guess it was probably considered offensive, so maybe that's why I got ditched it. Gaining popularity by doing live shows through the 90s while sharing stage with popular bands such as MXPX, a.k.a. Magnified Plaid, uh, Goldfinger, Sum 41, and Yellow Card, as well as H2O, the straight edge band, uh, the skate punk band. Cooter re- released a split with Slick Shoes in May 23, 2000. They eventually recorded their first full-length album, Looking Up. In 2000, the band was involved with a bitter lawsuit with the Mississippi punk rock band, The Cooters. Oh, they changed it because of, excuse me, somebody else uh, obtaining the rights to that name, their uh, trademark. So the New York band changed their name to Autopilot Off in April 2001. Settled out of court in 2002. However, the record label uh, Fast Music took the lawsuit all the way to federal court and lost the Mississippi band. They lost to them, clearly. In December 2001, Autopilot Off signed the major label, Island Records, after they released their eponymous EP of April 23, 2002. They supported Sum 41 on their headlining tour the East Coast of the U.S. and Canada. In November and December, the band supported the Ataris, I remember them, on their headlining U.S. tour. The band left the tour a week before it ended to start work on their next album, which they started recording March 2003. The band went on the Made tour, which ran from August, or excuse me, June to August of that year in 2003 playing alongside uh, Further Seems Forever, The Movie Life, and Amberlynn. I remember Amberlynn, my uh, buddy Cameron. I still think that's his favorite band, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they featured an appearance at Hellfest. It's not really that heavy of music, but sure, why not? In August, the band released the Regenerator EP, consisting of cover versions of songs by Quicksand, Bad Religion, Love Bad Religion, U2, and Guns and Wakers. In September and November, the band played a handful of Northeast and Midwest shows with City or excuse me, Lost City Angels. 2004, under the new name, Autopilot Off, they released their major debut album, Make a Sound, which you're hearing right now, including the single, What I Want. This is what I want, this is what I need. Yeah, great song. Which was co-written by Rancid's Tim Armstrong. Did not know that, and I am a Rancid fan. The track, Chromatic Fades, also featured in the video game NASCAR Thunder 2004, Make a Sound, appearing on Burnout 3 Takedown. Yes, Uh, I love that, love that game. And it makes perfect sense because this is the song you're hearing right now. I'm like, I know, I know this song. Appearing in the Cars video game and Clockwork appearing in the video game soundtracks for NHL 2004 and SSX Snowboarding, the third installment. Indefinite Hiatus 2005-2010. August 2005, uh, the band decided to go on a hiatus and released the following statement on their website. They're taking an indefinite break from the band. It nearly been 10 years since the band started uh, at full speed ahead the majority of the time. We all decided to take some time for our lives outside of this group. We are all still best friends. In addition to that, we decided a few months back to leave our home for four years at Island Records. We apologize for leaving you all hanging for so long. Thank you for all the support and friendships that you have all given us over the years. We could have never done it without you. That's nice sentiment. Since then, Chris Hughes... Uh, went on to become a business manager in the music industry and 
Good for him. That's great. Uh, bassist Rob Kucherek has gone on to open American Icon Screen Printing, an apparel screen printing company serving many bands in the majority of the BMX industry on the East Coast. Uh, reunion as far as 2011. Uh, an image of the band's name in the words 2011 being uploaded soon after, letting, leading to speculation of a possible reunion six years after they announced their hiatus. Uh, an update as of 2012 confirmed that the band were set to begin recording again as of 2013. Their uh, Facebook page had no updates, unclear that the progress of new songs was going or it was at a standstill and it was stagnant. As of 2014, announced that the two brand new songs entitled Alkalogic and When I Was Young, respectively, were being made available for free digital download. As of 2015, Autopilot Off released their new uh, track titled Lining Them Up. Uh, do we have a new album? Oh, we do. Okay, EP, I guess, When I Was Young, 2020. And I, I guess that's it. So, whatever. I guess that's all I really got on them. Uh, like I said, I heard them on a compilation. I believe it was a Vans Warp Tour. It might have been like uh, one of those like samplers or something too, like after a concert that I went to, and I, I loved it since then, and I still think it's great. I'm glad that I was able to share this with you guys. Uh, that being said, let me close this out and let's play. Uh, I'm going to talk about this band now. No fun at all. A little twofer here for you. Not too much on these guys. I heard about these guys when I went to a uh, San Diego swap meet. I was talking to some guy who was selling CDs. We were talking punk rock, and he was like, hey, you like Pennywise? I was like, yeah, man, I got it uh, tattooed on my wrist. He was like, you ever heard Swedish Pennywise? I was like, no, I'm intrigued. He was like, check out No Fun At All, often abbreviated to just NFAA, a Swedish punk rock band, formed in the summer of 1991 in Skinskatisberg, Sweden. The group initially consisted of Mikhail Danielson guitar, Jimmy Olsen vocals and drums, Henrik Sundvinsson on bass guitar, inspired by a tongue-in-cheek version of the uh, Iggy Pop and the Stooges song, no fun as covered by the sex pistols the name of the band sick of it all uh excuse me it so it's okay so it's inspired by the stooges as well as the band sick of it all hence the no fun of it all or no fun at all okay i i, I like that because i've heard sick of it all and they're okay i'm more of a stooges and sex pistols fan personally but the group released their albums on the swedish label burning heart records outside the u.s within the u.s no fun at all's albums were released on theologium records with the exception of Out of Bounds, which was released by Revelation Records, Epitaph as well, released a compilation known as Master Celebrations in the U.S. 2002, which is the song you're hearing right now, Master Celebrator, uh, making it their only release directly on Epitaph, despite Burning Heart's close association with them. In 93, <clears throat> Jimmy Olsen, the drummer, left the band to concentrate on his other band, Sober, contributed on all subsequent albums except Out of Bounds providing backup vocals. They then recruited three members, Ingmar Jansen on vocals, Christer Johansson on guitar, and Kjell Ramstedt on drums. In 99, Sundvisen quit. Danielson switched from guitar to bass, and Stephen Newman from Tribulation took up the vacant guitar slot. On July 11th, 2001, No Fun At All broke up, and they played their farewell show that month in 2001. Wow. Since 2004, they have reunited for several reunion shows, proceeding by a stream of never-ending stream, October 2008, and the single... Reckless I Don't Wanna on November 1st, 2008. They released Lowrider that same month, their own label, Beat'em Down Records, and on uh, April 19th, 2012, the Colin Festival. I love Colin. They will definitely be discussed on my show eventually. Announced that No Fun At All canceled their show at the festival due to their disbandment. As of May 2013, the band became active again and toured Australia in November of that year. 
with the boys set fire, I guess. Yeah, boys set fire off with their heads and Jughead's revenge. They have since toured Australia multiple times, including 2020 with Pennywise. Hell yeah. And Strung Out. Strung Out definitely deserves more love. In October through November 2022 in support of their latest album, Seventh Wave. So it sounds like they're still active, if I'm not mistaken. So that's awesome. I might get a chance to hopefully see these guys. Uh, that's it for this episode. I had a lot to say. I watched Sleepless in Seattle, loved it. Fatal Attraction, loved it. Cocktail, it was okay. Begotten, I liked it now that I've read about it, but visually watching it, I was like, eh, it's okay. Basic Instinct, masterpiece, loved it. I'm glad I got to talk to you guys about uh, no fun at all. <sighs> Excuse me, an autopilot off. I'm like out of breath here. Uh, I hopefully will find information on Deviates later and talk to you guys about other punk rock, uh, you know, other types of music later on down the road. Uh, yeah, so there you have it. Uh, Thank you for enjoying this episode. Love you guys. Thank you for the love and support. Have a good night.